Hey friends, welcome back to the Pulpit to Pew podcast and our adult Bible study, a brand new study, brand new series for 20 weeks, possibly 21, as we dive into the book of Romans. This book is deep, it's rich, and by deep I don't mean hard, I don't necessarily mean hard, I just mean this book will leave you with an understanding of New Testament Christianity if you take it serious. This is my third time teaching it. I've taught it to teenagers, probably the best time, best class that ever went. Taught it to a church, and I learned it at college using the same bones as an outline, but but the content changes as I grow. I was telling someone today, I probably first heard a teaching through the book of Romans, well, when I was in college, my freshman year, so probably about 21, 22 years ago, and then... I taught it about nine years ago to teenagers, and then I probably taught it about seven years ago to adults, and I'm teaching it again. But each time I've grown, as I'm in a new, and I was it was always in a new time of life and a new stage of life, and it is again this time as I teach it. And so I really think that that's going to help me, but I don't know about you, and I think it's going to be a help to you. And for those of you listening on the podcast. It's a whole new medium. You're listening to it over headphones or while you're driving or while you're working. And these are going to be longer. And so I'm interested to see how that translates. But I am telling you this book is a book that's needed today in our New Testament Christianity. And um, so I, I think with that introduction, I've just got to get right into it. Longer studies today, about 38 minutes or so. We'll see once I edit it. What's well, how long it ended up being, but about 38 minutes or so, so a little bit long, but we had to cover really what normally would have been two lessons. I covered covered quickly some introduction, so you understand the book, and then we got into the first 17 verses. So sit back, take some time, maybe get some notes. I was going to attach some notes, and I may still do it if I can figure out how. Before I hit record, I briefly looked and couldn't figure it out. So if I can and I can figure it out, I will attach some notes as we go throughout this for you all that are listening on the podcast. But outside of that, just sit back, pray, and say, God, speak to my heart about the truth of this book. And I know that some of you listen to it, some of you are at work and doing different things, and you can't. If you're able to have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it up as you study down through this. And for those of you that can't, Maybe consider reading through Romans a little bit as you go. Maybe this week read Romans 1, 1 through 17 because that's the lesson. And I'm just, I really think you need to focus on this as like a college setting and just say, I want to learn as much as I can about this book because it will unlock the rest of the New Testament, in my opinion. So, hey, without further ado, let's jump right into the very first lesson in the book of Romans. All right, let's take our Bibles and go to Romans 1. Romans 1, as we begin this brand new series, I passed out to those of you here in the class, I passed out that outline, you should have it. I'm going to get to that in just a second. I'm actually, when I've taught this before, the lesson we're going to start on today was lesson 2. So you're going to get lesson 1 super fast, okay? But it's kind of the introduction to this book. And so I want to cover a little bit of that. I better actually turn to Romans 2, Romans as well, that's going to help. But a few things about the book of Romans to kind of get us started, and it's I wrote these in the bulletin a few weeks ago, and I, uh, I've talked about them, Brian has talked about them, but 
some and some throughout history, you think of uh, you know, Martin Luther and some others have read this book and it's changed their lives. Martin Luther, the reason why he had 95 Thesis and some of those is because he read Romans chapter 1. Um, it, it just There's impactful verses throughout this entire book. Some call it the doctrinal statement of the early church. I wrote these four statements a few times, but I'm going to repeat them. Someone said this is Paul's masterpiece. You think about Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. They called it Paul's masterpiece. They said it's the key, and that's kind of what I said in our introductory comments here earlier, it's the key that unlocks the door of the vast treasures of Scripture. And I would say this book is the key on understanding the gospel. Because when I say the gospel, if you even understand what that is, and I don't say that in an insulting way, I mean some just don't understand what the gospel is. But if you understand what the gospel is, a lot of, it, a lot of people only understand the gospel when it comes to the sinner. I am a sinner, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, now I'm saved. But they don't understand that the gospel is also for the saint, for the Christian. And that's Romans 6, 7, and 8, we're going to get into that. But it's a masterpiece. Um, it, someone said it's the most profound book in existence. Someone said the chief part of the New Testament is the very purest of the gospel. And someone else said a thorough study of this book is really a theological education in itself. And that's how I'm going to handle this book. As I told you, I, I took it in college. I've taught it twice. I'm going to, in some ways, I'll feel it out as it goes. I do that with about every class. But in some ways, I'm going to try to handle this like, um, like a college class in some ways. I'm not going to give you the quizzes. I've done that to the teenagers. I did it to the teenagers when I had them. I had all year. I gave them quizzes. I gave them tests. But they knew the book of Romans when we were done. It was just for fun. It was no, it's kind of fun taking a test when there's no, if you fail it, you fail it. Hey, it doesn't matter. If you're in school, it's a big deal. But when you were at church in Sunday school class and your crazy teacher's like, hey, I'm giving you quizzes and tests for fun. And we made it fun. We had fun with it. Um, it was, it was probably my favorite study of all time. And I do miss that, that youth group and doing those things that we did. It was a great time. But, so let's get into a little bit of introductory because I don't like flying you into a book in the middle of the Bible and then you just being like, all right, I just got to kind of figure out where we are as we go. So let's just tell you a little bit about this. Who wrote this book? Who was it written to? And things like that. Rome, let's talk about that for a second. Rome had a population of about one to four million people. So one to four million people, but a majority of those people were slaves. Some say about 60% of that, those millions were actually slaves in Rome. Rome was a very religious city, and I use religious in quotation marks. Okay, It was a very religious city. It had about 420 temples of worship to all of these various gods. That's who Rome was. The church at Rome, there was a church there. I'm going to tell you where it came in just a second. But the church at Rome was a multi-congregation. It had Jews in it, had Greeks in it, and it had Romans in it. So you've got a lot of cultures combining in this church here. So, and, and some of these introductory notes, I don't know if you're going to remember them on like week 16 or week 17. But the, the parts that you do remember may help because there's going to come some times like in Romans chapter 13 when I'm saying this is how you submit to your government. you got to remember there were some Jews in here that didn't like their government. The Rome was not very good. you got to remember there's 60% of these he's writing to are probably slaves. They didn't like how they were being treated. And so remember the context that we're writing. When Paul writes this, he's saying, I'm writing these things to you as a Christian, even in undesirable circumstances. And so 
That's a little bit about what's going on. In this church, so it said, it said it's a multi-congregation. Not only does it have Jews and Greeks and Romans, but it also had the high-class people that, that were living and, 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 and living in kind of riches or lived in nice places. Then also had the lower-class servants that maybe worked for some of these people. So it was a different multi-cultural uh, area. So who started this church? Someone even asked me that before this class started when we were just kind of getting ready for this. They said, so who do you think started this church? And I said, well, there's four thoughts. So here's the four thoughts, all right? The fourth one, just a little subpoint, is what I actually believe, all right? But the first one, some say it was Peter. But the problem with that is Peter was ministering in Jerusalem at the time of this epistle, and he's not mentioned anywhere in Romans 16, so it probably wasn't Peter. Some say it was Paul, um, but Paul implies that he had never been there. So we're talking about who started the church not who wrote this, who started the church. Paul mentions in here he's never been there. So probably wasn't Paul that did this. Some say it was Paul's converts, and that's possible. If there's a close one, uh, because Paul does refer to the number of the people that he knew, so that's possible. But most, most likely is that, remember during Pentecost, we studied the book of Acts, people came from all over, and those 3,000 got saved. And they were, remember, they were speaking in one language. They didn't understand the other language. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Many converts from there went back to where they are. Many think they went back to even Rome and returned and began meeting together and talking about what they learned. And that was probably the start of this early church. Could have been a combination of three and four where uh, those people from Pentecost came, started the little group, and then some of Paul's converts came. Could have been a combination of the two. But Paul is going to say, even in the early verses that we're going to get to today, he hadn't been there. Not yet. And when he does get there, he's going to come in chains. He's going to come as a prisoner. So we're going to see that. So some distinctive features about this book as we get into it. Romans is the longest epistle, 7,100 words. I counted every one of them. No, I took someone else's word for it. All right, That came straight from my college notebook, probably. 7,100 words. So if my college person lied... Then that was the person that lied to him and the person that lied to him. Does it matter in life? No. And you don't have a quiz or test. But what is neat to know is it is the longest epistle. Uh, in Romans, Paul quotes more of the Old Testament than in any of all the other epistles combined. He quotes a lot of Old Testament. And that's important. Why? Why, why is that important? Remember what I said about this book? This is a doctrinal book. He is saying to the early church, here's what we believe. And what is he basing it off of? The scriptures that they had at the time. So what they had at the time was the Old Testament. And he's basing it off the scripture. And that's important because there's a lot of people today say, oh, that Old Testament doesn't matter. Oh, it does. Because the New Testament's here because of the foundation of that Old Testament. And it still applies to our lives. And in Romans chapter 15, when we get there, Paul's going to say that those scriptures are given before time for our learning. And that's going to be a good passage, but that's a long ways away. So... Um, he quotes a lot from it, and Romans presents a doctrinal summary of New Testament Christianity. We're going we're to cover all that throughout this whole thing. The theme, which I'll get into some today, is really the plan of salvation and the righteousness of God from Romans 1.17 that I'm going to get to. And then that outline. You see that outline I gave you? Uh, take a look at that real quick. This is not going to be because there's too many weeks to cover each one of these one by one. I want you to get an overview of this book. It's kind of good sometimes when you're learning something to know the context, to see the big picture, the, what some call the 30,000 uh, foot view of this, and then we zoom in to the individual chapters. And so uh, this outline was straight from my college course. Nate, did you, you would have had a different teacher, but did you take Romans when you were at PCC, that class? 
Okay, and Valerie, you were on all your nursing stuff, so I doubt you even had time for a Romans class. But, uh, um, but this was one of the ones that I took there from probably when I, I took Romans as a freshman. You weren't supposed to take it till like a junior. But I got in it because I would just loved the book. And, uh, but I had the teacher. I'm glad I did because this teacher didn't stay there too long after that. But he was one of the best teachers just you've ever had. Just, and as a freshman, that was kind of what am I going to do? I went there as a, as a major to be a criminal. Crim, um, well, it was just a Bible major. And then I thought about being a detective or something like that, getting into criminology. And then eventually I called me to preach during that time. Um, but this book and his teaching, and I have no idea where he's at anymore. At last I heard he was in Illinois, but I have no idea. It, it impacted me. But here was the outline. We had to memorize this. And so it changed me a lot of how I think of this book. But early on, what we're going to cover today is the salutation. It's just him saying greetings to them, but there's some good stuff in this that we're going to get to in a minute. But it's the salutation. He's giving some greeting. But then over chapters 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to get into where he deals with sin. And when he deals with sin, here's what he's going to do. He's going to start by saying, he's going to start by saying, hey, you Gentiles, you guys are guilty. You guys are sinners. And remember this congregation in Rome, they got the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Romans. So he's going to start by saying to you Gentiles, if I got my notes right, see if I memorized it from college, but he said, you Gentiles, you are guilty. In Romans chapter 1 next week, we're going to get into some of the, some verses that modern day people are like, oh, that's not in the Bible. Oh, it's right here in Romans chapter 1. And he's going to say to the Gentiles, us, you guys are all guilty before God. You are sinners. Chapter 2, it's like the Gentiles are, or the Jews are going, ha, yep, you guys are sinners. He's going to say, hey, Jews, you guys are guilty. And here's why you're guilty, and here's why you shouldn't be guilty, but you are. And then it's like maybe the Greeks are the, over there going, ah, you guys got you all. And then chapter 3, first 20 verses, he's going to say, hey, the whole world is guilty. And that's our, sin, our verse, for all have sinned and control the law. He's going to say to them, all of you guys are guilty. And so the first three chapters are all about establishing sin. And you know what? And I, I may never get through this lesson today because I'm already enjoying the book. But here's why this is so important. If you've ever said, you know what? I, I don't know how to lead somebody to the Lord. I don't know how to tell somebody how to get saved. The outline of this book is how you do it. Paul did it in a grand epistle fashion. You start with sin. If you don't understand you're a sinner... You're never going to understand salvation. So the first three chapters, he says, Gentiles, sinners. Jews, sinners. Whole world, sinners. So it all applies to us. And then chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, he's going to talk about salvation. Righteousness declared. He's going to, he's going to say, he's going to describe salvation. He's going to illustrate salvation. He's going to explain salvation. Some of those famous verses that you guys know. He's, it, it, for um, As by one man sent into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. It's going to be in those verses. He, he's going to talk about salvation because he's already dealt with sin. Then he's going to deal with salvation. Then 6, 7, and 8. By far my favorite verses, my favorite chapters. 6, 7, and 8, he's now talking about sanctification. Because once you're saved... You've got to live this Christian life. And this is that part I said at the beginning, the gospel to the saints. How do we live the Christian life? You just told us we're sinners. We just got saved. How do we live the Christian life? Romans 6, 7, and 8. Great, great chapters. Then we get to Romans 9, 10, 11. 
highly controversial chapters. Huge, highly controversial chapters. We're not going to have any controversy in here. We're going to explain it and go right through it. It talks about the sovereignty of God. And, and he's looking here. It's like a parenthesis assembly. He's talking about Israel's past. They were God's elect. Israel's present. They've rejected God. And that's why the church has moved into focus right now. But Israel's future, where God is going to restore them. Then he gets back to very practical, and he gets talking about service. We've dealt with sin, salvation. Now he's going to talk about service in the Christian life. This is where we get those famous verses of, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We're going to find them here. He's going to talk about how do we deal, how, what's the relation to ourselves. That's those two verses. How do we relate in the church? That's going to be the spiritual gifts. How do we relate to the society? There's some great verses there. How do we relate to the government, chapter 13? How to relate to other believers, 14 and 15? And then the conclusion. I wish there was a good S for conclusion, but there's just not. I've blown through the sources like crazy for the last probably however many years since college. There's not a good one for conclusion that I can find necessarily. But conclusion. And then we'll get into some last things. So that's the outline I just gave to you just to kind of have an overview. That's the 30,000 view. You're going to see all those things that we're going to cover and I went through it fast, but it's very detailed and very doctrinal. And so we're going to begin to zoom in a little bit on that. But the first part of that was Paul's salutation. And that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes here today. So you got your Bibles here in Romans chapter 1. Let's just go in slowly. And, and how I want to teach this the best I can. Like a couple weeks, it's going to be hard because we're covering a ton of verses in a couple weeks. But as much as I can, I'm just going to walk you through it. And try to have some fun as we study it. So look at it. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he's now talking about the gospel of God. He says, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures. I said there's no quizzes, but let me throw one out there. You're probably going to give me silence, and that's fine, but we're going to get used to this, all right? He says here that the gospel which was promised afore. Can anyone remember what some call the first promise of the gospel, where it's found in the Bible? Does anybody remember what the context was? It's a good little question right here. I'll put this one on a quiz. I would put it on a quiz. Genesis chapter 3. Remember when the serpent, he says, the serpent is bruised the heel, but thou wilt... I just messed it all up right there, all right? So cut, edit, and I'll redo that, and I'll look real smart on the podcast. But uh, no, I won't. But he says, when the serpent's being judged, he says, you bruised the heel, but he's going to crush your skull, basically. And that was the first picture of the gospel, that there was going to be promise of one coming. At the end of that chapter, he killed the, the, the goat and made them skins, a picture of Jesus. It's Genesis chapter number 3. But then you could go to Isaiah and other passages that it was promised that the Messiah was going to come. Isaiah 53 is, a, is really a, a gruesome picture of the coming of the Messiah. And so he says, Paul's just saying who he is. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant means a bond slave. A bond slave, I don't have time to get too much into this, but a bond slave was, and he would immediately identify with 60% of his audience. Because he used the word as servant or slave. He says, hey, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And immediately, many in that church understood who he was. He, and a bond slave was one back in the Old Testament times that they, you, what you would do as a servant, if you served someone, you would serve for seven years, six years or seven years. And then if you wanted to stay with that person, they would put that 
hole in your ear and you would stay with, with your master and you worked for him. There was a good relationship most, most of the time. A lot of the picture we've seen today from our, our society in the last 100, 100 years or so, which was very gruesome and very wicked and very wrong, is a little bit different sometimes in the Bible times. So when I use the word slave here or servant, it's not, always this, it's not the same connotation that we have today which uh, was very wicked in what happened. But, um, but some wanted to be freed, wanted to be left, and others wanted to stay, and so they were a bond slave. They were bound to their master by choice. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, I am bound to serve Jesus by choice. I want to serve him. I love him. He says, I want to serve him. Paul had enslaved himself to Christ to be his servant. That's what he's telling us here in the first verse. He called himself an apostle, which means he's one that's sent by authority. Apostles don't exist today. Some call themselves apostles. Apostle is one who's seen a risen Christ. Remember when Paul saw Jesus Christ? was on Acts chapter 9. He was on the road to Damascus. He was going to go persecute Christians, and Jesus stopped him. And that's when he saw the resurrected Christ. So he's an apostle separated to the gospel. He's sent with authority. So... Separated into the gospel. The gospel is the good news. We're going to get into this a lot. And so it's the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, as I already said, was promised in the Old Testament. It said, hey, there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come. He's going to die. He's going to, he's going to rise again. They were looking for the Messiah. I mean, even, even the, the, the young ladies, when they were going to be married, all of them thought maybe I would be the one to hold the Messiah. And Mary ended up being the one that gave birth to the Messiah. But they waited for the coming of the Messiah. And so uh, verse 3 says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. This is talking about the humanity of Jesus. He had to become man. We understand that. He had to become man to die for us. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. He talks about his deity in verse 4. He says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. He is not only the humanity of Jesus, but he was deity. And, and Paul is speaking this a short time after Jesus had ascended. I say a short time because for us it's been 2,000 years. For them, and when he's writing this, I don't remember the exact time period he's writing this, but it's probably about 30 to 60 years after that probably more than 30. So he's, he's writing about the humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and that is a, it's a hot topic still back then. When we studied Acts, it definitely was a hot topic. It was immediate. But it's still identifying with Jesus, Paul understood persecution. And then he talks in verse 5 about the authority of Jesus. He said, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith of among all nations for his name. This is, this is the authority that he has. He was, he was given grace, salvation. But grace means more, and you're going to see throughout this whole study, grace is more than just salvation. Grace is also an enablement. When God enables you to teach a class, when God enables Aaron later today to teach junior church, that's God's grace. I mean, look at Aaron. I mean, really? I mean, no, just kidding. I mean, that's God's grace. When God enables me or to teach a class, if anything resonates with you, it's only God's grace. It's God gives grace and salvation, yes, but he, grace also has the definition of a supernatural enablement, enabling or someone to do something. 
He calls us for service. I wish you guys had your notes, which I, if I would have printed them, you would see all of this. It's a little easier to go through, but he calls us to grace. He calls us to service. That grace helps us to obey by faith. But the purpose of all of this, it says the last part of verse 5. Did you see that? For his name. That's what this is all about. Paul wasn't doing any of this for his own glory. And you and I are not serving or doing anything. His grace is not given to us for, for our glory. God's not going to give Aaron grace today to teach junior church so that those kids walk out and say, Wow. Aaron is the best teacher I've ever heard in junior church. He's better in all the in the history of junior church at Faith Baptist Church. He's the best. That's not what God's grace is for. God's grace is for so those kids walk out of there saying, Man, God isn't God loves me. It's amazing what God has done. God's glory. That's what Paul's ministry was all about. This entire thing was Paul's for God's glory. So that if if you were to see the notes, that was really Paul's credentials. He's opening up here. And he's going to go, I didn't read verse 6 and 7. Let's just read those quickly. He says, among whom ye also the called of Jesus Christ. He said, you're called as well to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's given his credentials a little bit. When you're writing a letter, here's who's writing. It follows the pattern of all the other New Testament epistles where they kind of, but he's a little bit more in depth here than the other epistles. But he's, he's establishing, hey, God has called me to do this. I'm an apostle. And in our culture, that may be a little weird. If I sent you an email and I listed all my stuff, you'd have been like, okay, Brad, you're full of pride here. Okay, we got it. You got this degree or you got that. Thank you very much. Now, what do you want to say in your email? But that's the custom then. He's establishing because a lot of them back then were a little skittish. Like, well, who are you? Are you really, do you have any authority? And he was saying, my authority is not in myself. I was called of God. I've seen, and so that's what he's getting to. That's Paul's credentials. But then in the last little bit here today, let's see Paul's care, how much he cared for this church. Starting in verse 8, he says, first, and he's opening everything now. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. Sounds a lot like, Colossians. I just preached on that a few Sunday nights ago. You may remember. That's what he said about the church of Colossae. He was thankful for this church at Rome. He, he hadn't seen them, but he's heard about them, and he, and he loved it. He had heard that they had a good testimony. He had heard what, about their faith in Jesus Christ. And however he heard it, people always shared with him what's going on in these different churches. Paul said, I'm thankful for what I hear about your life. And what do people hear about our lives? I mean, when people look and, and they see us, what do they see? Because they didn't have Facebook back then. They didn't have any of that stuff. So Paul is just hearing from others that had been around and spent some time with these people. And they said, their faith is strong. And that word got all the way back to Paul on his missionary journeys. And he said, I'm glad to hear about your faith. But what do people hear about you? What do they know? What do they... What, do, what, what stands out to them about your life? Paul was thankful for what he saw to those at Rome, but then Paul was prayerful. It says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. I one time did a little study and just Paul, what I, I, I called it, I think, I don't remember if I taught on it or preached on it one time, but I called it Paul's prayer list. 
And I just went through everywhere that Paul says he prayed for people. And assuming Paul was telling the truth, and it's in the Bible, so I'm assuming he was, Paul had a pretty big prayer list. He was praying for people, prayed for the church at Colossae. He was praying for the church at Rome, the church of Thessalonica, all these different churches. He, he prayed for them. Why? Well, I think because, number one, he prayed without ceasing because he understood the power of prayer, and he actually believed it. A lot of times we talk about it, but it's like, oh, I believe in the power of prayer, but it's as long as somebody else is praying, we don't pray ourselves. We don't make time for it. But Paul believed in the power of prayer, and he knew that there were needs, and so he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he was prayerful for this church that he had not yet seen, but he wanted to see them, and we're going to get to that in a second, but he prayed. So my question to us, I guess, do we pray consistently for people? I think of Mr. Pitts. He's one that every morning when I'm driving to work, I shouldn't say every just in case I've missed one, but I try to most mornings as I'm driving to work to pray for him. Why? Because he can't get up to go to work if he wanted. He can't do anything. And I absolutely hate that for him. It just, it, um, it's an emotional thing for me because here he was. He was sitting in our church and now he can't. And I believe that it's got to be, I can't imagine, if I lost function, uh, being able to walk or anything, it would just be devastating. But, yes, go ahead. He's also a very outstanding person. But, that's exactly where I was transitioning with my conjunction there, but. But, he, when I've talked to him, has a great spirit about him. Why? Because of the grace of God. It's what it is. But, he needs us to pray. Because just as good of a man as he is in the grace of God, he's got Satan who would love to discourage him. And I wouldn't think it wouldn't take much to discourage a person like that. Wouldn't take much, not because of him, but just because of what's going on. It wouldn't take much. And I mean, Satan's going to be attacking, going to try to discourage. I think of his wife when I pray, no matter what, what she's got to go through. Think of the load that she's already got to bear. I mean, husbands alone, we're a lot to deal with already. Can I get an amen for some of the ladies in here? So now you now your husband has going undergoing this it's a lot she needs our prayer but it seems like in our modern day back then i see where paul prayed but a lot of us today we've got so much to do and we forget to pray and god convicts me about that to let we got to remember one another paul was praying for these churches not just his church that's we're just talking about people in our church paul was praying for different churches all kinds of people he was prayerful I don't, he was thankful, he was prayerful. Did you notice this next one? He was hopeful. He said in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. I forgot verse 10, so I want to back up. He says, Making request, if by any means now at length I may have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. He wanted to go see these people. That's where he says, then I long to see you. He wanted to impart unto them some spiritual gift. And then verse 12, he says, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. This may be a little confusing, so let's talk about this, because this is a good point. He was hopeful to see them in Rome. Number one, he wanted to teach them. That's what he did. He said, I just want to come to you. I hear you get strong faith, but they were young believers. He says, I want to impart unto you a spiritual gift. God has gifted him to teach. 
He said, I want to teach you. I want to spend some time with you. But it wasn't just the giving. He, want, he did want to strengthen them, he said. He wanted to encourage them. They live in a, this culture that I've told you about. It's got to be difficult. He wants to encourage them. But he said in verse 12, and I like this, he talked about their mutual faith. He wanted to also be encouraged by them. You know, it's good to be around people that encourage you. Other Christians. It can be deflating when you're around people that aren't... I, I just... Uh, my... Your wife, Aaron, I don't know why you keep picking on Aaron today, but your wife just told me about, and I know this will be on the podcast, but what, I don't care. But he's talking about his coach, uh, their coach that's going to be coaching with him, and I guess their first baseball practice, these little kids that coach, like, I'm probably going to cuss at your kids, and, and, uh, and I'm going to yell at them some. And I, The coach in me that I don't get to coach anymore, but I was like, oh, no, 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 you're not going to coach my little nieces, or my nephews, nieces, don't tell them I said that, but my, my nephews. But it's not the spirit that those little kids need to hear right now. They need to be encouraged. But anyways, why I got sidetracked on that, because I'm still frustrated from what I heard. But what it's so good is when we when I was coaching with Aaron, when it was just him and I, there was a mutual faith. We agreed on things. And when you get around people at church, there's just something nice about being around other believers. I don't, you can't talk to this guy without two things. Number one, him trying to encourage you. Two, he's going to cry. All right, it's going to happen. But he just he loves the Lord. And he encourages my faith when I'm around. And being around some of you guys, you're just encouraging. I was joking with the cars when they had COVID. And I, was, I told uh, his wife, of course, we want you back. I don't know about your husband now. And we understand that we was joking. But we, there's a mutual faith about each one of us that is encouraging. And it should strengthen us. And so there, there, he was hopeful to be strengthened by them. And it ought to be that we are hopeful to be strengthened by other believers. And we encourage others. And we laugh with others. And we have a good time. And that's why I'm glad that we you can laugh. Like you, you can't have a good time. You can fellowship with other believers. And so he was hopeful to see them. And I have a, in my notes here just a question even to myself. But do we invest in the lives of others to both receive and give encouragement? That's a big investment. It's an investment that we need to make. As I think Dad has said some recently, it's easy just to give someone money. Even though we're very tight sometimes, but it's easy to just say, hey, here's $10, go do what you need to do. But the investment of time into people is one of the important things that we need to do. And it's going to be beneficial both ways. It's going to be mutual. You're going to receive some back from it. So he was hopeful. He was prayerful. He was thankful. And then he was mindful. We talked in verse 13. I already read verse 13. But he had said that he, he had planned to go to him. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He said, I, I purpose to come to you. He was going to them, but was let hitherto let hitherto let is an old english word there he was hindered he was hindered from getting to them so he tried to but he was hindered he said that i might have some fruit among you also even as among other gentiles so there was times when he tried to get to the rome but he got interrupted i call this divine interruptions there's sometimes when god moves you somewhere else and wants you to do something else but when he had to move on he said i'm going to go to rome i really want to see this church of rome and god moved him somewhere over here he didn't just get frustrated he preached the gospel and he saw some fruit here and there's going to be some times in your life when you have these divine interruptions life doesn't go what what you think but don't get discouraged and quit those are the moments that you still serve god then he was mindful and then he was purposeful about preaching the gospel and this is we're going to get 16 and 17 deserve more time than i'm going to give it but because they basically are the theme of the entire book, I'm only going to give it a little bit of time. But look at verse 14. I love Paul's heart here. Look at what he says. He says, I'm a debtor 
both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. See what he's saying? He, he was purposeful. He said, hey, I, I'm a debtor. I, I, I feel like I'm in debt to you people. I want to preach the gospel. I'm, I, I, and he says, I'm ready to do it. I'm, I want to get the gospel preached to everybody. And then he says in verse 16, the famous verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he gives us the nature of the gospel. He says, for it is the power of God. That's the nature of the gospel. It is powerful. It changes lives. It's changed your life in here, right? I'm assuming everyone in here, your life has been changed by the gospel. Think of where you could be and where you are now. Think of some of your high school classmates and where you are now. Think about maybe some family and where you are now. The gospel changed your life, and that same gospel needs to impact others. The nature of the gospel is powerful, but the purpose of the gospel, he says, he says in that verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. That's what the power is for. It's to deal with the past, the penalty of our sin. It's to deal with the present, which is the power of sin. That's Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it's to deal with the future, the presence of sin. Now, all of us love that part. We get to go to heaven one day, see our loved ones. That's the future. The gospel got us there. All of us love to say, my sins are forgiven. That's the past. But then some of us live in the future and say, well, this sin's just too hard. So when I get there, everything's going to be good. My past stuff's all taken care of. But right here, it's just really tough. Whoa. That's where the gospel, the gospel didn't just get you there and take care of that. The gospel actually will empower you right here. If you've been in any of my classes, you've heard me teach that. And that's Romans 6, 7, and 8. So the purpose is to bring salvation, saved from past to the future, but even right now. The scope of the gospel, this is, a, this is it shouldn't be controversial, but it is. Listen to this. For it is the power of God unto salvation to what? To every one that believeth. Remember that when I get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. But the gospel is to everyone, right? Not just a select few. Not just whoever God decided to give it to and the rest of you are out of luck. That's, I'm, I'm alluding to a teaching called Calvinism. We believe the gospel is to everyone. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The scope of the gospel is to everyone. The reception of the gospel, he says, to everyone that believes, it's by faith. That is salvation. It's not by works, it's by faith. And then verse 17 is a great verse. It's the result of the gospel. He says this. This is the last verse we're going to cover. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. This little phrase what changed Martin Luther's life when he studied it out. But it says, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting Old Testament. That's Habakkuk is where it says that. But the just shall live by faith. From faith to faith. And here's what he's saying. It's what I've just said. When you got saved, for me, about 11, 12 years old, Back on 1261 East State Road, 1261 East State Road 242, I don't remember what it was. Is that something like that? It's about where Aaron lives now. Upstairs in that room, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and I got saved that moment. When I got up from that bedside where my dad had his Ryrie Study Bible, I found that Bible right over here in this library. It's still sitting over there, the one that he led me to the Lord in. 
that when I got up from that place and went back downstairs and crossed the kitchen and down the hallway and to the right to the far room on the right to go to bed I now went from faith to faith and since that day I've had to live by faith have I always done it no sometimes I try to overcome sin in my own flesh my own works my own then sometimes I doubt but I was saved by faith and I'm to live by faith that's this phrase from faith to faith the just that's who got saved by faith shall live by faith it's just a beautiful introduction that he gives because he's saying this the gospel saves you but it also sustains you throughout the Christian life and changes your life and that's kind of his introduction to the book of Romans 17 verses and then when we come back next week starting in verse 18 he's going to say you guys are sinners and i so i'm going to look at you guys next week all right if you come back i'm going to look at you next week and you're going to look at me i'm not going to say it but it's basically going to be saying we're all sinners you're looking at a sinner and i'm looking at a room full of sinners and he's going to start nailing them with doctrine that you guys are sinners but next week in chapter 17 it is chapter one starting in verse 18 you're actually going to see a downward spiral you're going to you're going to see modern day america you really are. And it's going to show you what happens when people reject God. There's going to be some verses in there where it says this, God gave them over to themselves. And you know what happens when God gave them over to themselves? One of the sins mentioned here that you'll hear all the time today, like, oh, it's not in the Bible. One of the sins mentioned is homosexuality. It's in Romans chapter 1 and many others. People will say nowadays that's only an Old Testament thing. It's actually right there in Romans chapter 1. It's in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy. And so, understand when we come into the next week, we're going to deal with sin. And he's going to say, when, when you guys forget about God, this is the life that you live. And we're going to deal with some of those sins. So, next week's going to be ugly, but foundational for this entire book. We'll get back to it next week. Let's pray.